Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 255 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. I hope uh, it is a good day wherever you are as you listen to this. We are in for a treat. Today, we have Oz Guinness, and he is a PhD from Oxford. He's written or edited more than 30 books. He spends a lot of time, well, really in the field of philosophy. That's what his doctorate from Oxford is in. And we are going to talk about freedom and the current moment we're in. Uh, Sometimes we do deep dives in in really sort of bizarre directions, and uh, this would be one of those that I just loved because uh, I also, well, I don't have a doctorate, but I have a degree in history, and sometimes it's very, very difficult to sense the moment you're in. And uh, I think we're in one of those seasons where everything's changing so fast. And we got to get a little bit of perspective around it. Oz is going to help us with that. So uh, really, really excited. You know what else he is? He is the great, great, great grandson of Arthur Guinness, the brewer from Dublin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, we've never had a guest like that before. And we got a whole lot of great guests coming up on the podcast. Who do we have? Well, uh, next week we are back with Carly Fiorina. We also have Andrew Stanley, who is a stand-up comedian, and yes, also the son of Andy Stanley. Mike Hyatt is coming up. Um, I've, I've been so looking forward to that. Nona Jones from Facebook, the founder of the Ritz-Carlton. Horst Schulze is here. Les McEwen is back. Sean Cannell, the YouTube sensation, is coming up. Ken Coleman, and uh, well, a whole lot more. It's going to be a pretty incredible lineup. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do so. And for all of you who continue to share this program with the people you love, thank you. So whether you're on a run, on a ride, on your commute, cooking, uh, I don't know what you're doing, but thanks for tuning in. I am super excited about being part of this year's Push Pay Summit in Dallas, Texas. It's happening May 22nd, 23rd. I'll be keynoting along with Patrick Lencioni, Cheryl Batchelder, Bobby Grunwald, Clay Scroggins, Nona Jones, the sad Nona Jones from Facebook. And last year I was at their summit, had a great time. Stephen Furtick spoke, Erwin McManus, I interviewed Scott Harrison. It was incredible. They throw a great event. And I sat down with Troy Pollack, who's one of the vice presidents at PushPay. And I said, so like, who goes there? Is this like senior pastors only? Here was his answer. Anybody can attend. If you are a customer of ours, we would love to see you in Dallas. If you are not a customer of ours, we would love to see you in Dallas. You know, when we think about putting on this conference, Carrie, it truly is to just assemble thought leaders and great communicators inside the church and outside the church that are doing great things in their lane. And so that's really what it is about. It's not about pushing the push pay brand uh, on anybody or self-serving for us and what we build in terms of technology. It's more to equip the church, capital C, with great practical examples from these thought leaders of how they're scaling their organizations that you can actually bring back to your organization on Monday morning and apply those best practices and help you be more effective in your role. So I would love for you to join us and we have a special offer for you, okay? Um, Lots of strategy, lots of access to so many of the speakers. I will be there, would love to interact with you. So if you go to the website, you'll see the early bird pricing is $159. But because you listen to this show, 
uh, we're going to give you a special coupon code. It's just on checkout. Use the word CAREYN, C-A-R-E-Y-N. Use that coupon code. That will bring your cost per person down to $89 per team member. That's it. Almost half price. So head on over to pushpay.com forward slash summit to learn more and to register today. I can't wait to see you there. Also, I know so many leaders who struggle with staffing and it's a real problem. We're in a full employment economy. And so finding good people is really hard. If you are looking to grow your team, or frankly, to be honest with you, some of you who are solo pastors, solopreneurs uh, in the business world, you don't have a team and you're like, I can't afford it. Uh, Sometimes you can't afford not to. And the solution that I've turned to again and again over the last few years is Belay. And you can head on over to belaysolutions.com forward slash carry and get started today with virtual staffing. My entire company is virtual. So I have people in Tennessee, in Nebraska, in California, here in Canada and elsewhere. And guess what? It works amazing. And we produce things like this show for you. So I think you're absolutely going to love it. Uh, I would love for you to check that out. So go on over to belaysolutions.com forward slash carry and get started. Build your team today. You can start with as little as 10 hours a week. And here's what they do. They actually source people. So 98% of applicants to Belay don't get through. And they pick the very best of the best and present them to you. I know because I've had a number of those very best of the best. So I, I would love for you to get some help, the help that you need, even in a full employment economy. Head on over to belaysolutions.com forward slash carry. And uh, remember to join me in Dallas. That is pushpay.com forward slash summit and use the coupon code CARRYN. And we will be hanging out together this year. I'm so excited for that. Hey, uh, well, without further ado, why don't we jump into my conversation with Oz Guinness? Well, Oz, welcome to the podcast. My privilege to be on with you. Yeah, it's, it's great to have you. So I think, you know, as any regular listener of this podcast will know, we have talked about everything changing. And I think we live in a time of kind of unprecedented cultural change, at least in our lifetime. And that's certainly the argument that you are making. You say that 2016 was a really pivotal year for America. Tell us what in in your mind changed in 2016. Well, obviously, that was the year of the election and the election of Donald Trump. And I think the surprise and the shock of Donald Trump has just brought things out of the woodwork, which had been there for quite a while, but are now becoming increasingly blatant. And you can see it even more with the Kavanaugh hearings a little later and then with the midterm elections. And you probably know my argument that um, America's as deeply divided as any time since the Civil War. And what's the deepest division? It's between those who understand America in the lens or the light of the American Revolution 1776, which was decisively, although not consistently, Christian because of the Reformation. And those who understand America through the lens of the French Enlightenment and ideas that have flowed from that, so they're often without realizing it, closer to 1789 than they are to 1776. If you look at things like political correctness or the sexual revolution or the new rage in the U.S. for socialism and so on, you can see things that would have been unrecognizable just a few years ago, and they all owe their roots to 
to the French Revolution, not the American. And so that's what began to come out in opposition to Trump. Now, a lot of people blame Trump for everything. And I argue he's not the cause of the problem. He's the consequence. He's the symptom. And if he fails drastically, the reaction against him could actually lead things even further towards the secular progressive left. So very significant year, 2016. Yeah, and just so people know too, you're you're not making a partisan argument as in, you know, hey, Democrats no, no. versus Republicans. This is much bigger, this is much deeper. It's 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 a larger narrative and in 2016, it's kind of a, a symptom. Now, I happen to have a degree in history and political science, so I'm always fascinated in revolutions, but uh for those who may not be completely up to date on the differences between the French Revolution and the American Revolution. Talk to us what the distinction is that, that you see in those two events, which were just a few years apart. Well, go back even earlier than that. There are two revolutions, the English, 1642, and the American, 1776, which were biblical. The English one, of course, failed, and historians call it the lost cause. Mm. But what was the lost cause in Old England became the winning cause in New England. And you can see that the Reformation put its stamp on America through things like covenant, which became the American Constitution and was a direct borrowing from the Old Testament and so on. Now, the three other major revolutions, the French, 1789, the Russian, 1917, and the Chinese, 1949, I remember that as a boy, hmm. they were decisively coming from an anti-religious direction. Right. And they were secular and had a completely different understanding. So take one difference. The American Revolution has a biblical anthropology at its heart. In other words, realism about the abuse of power and fallen nature. So you have checks and balances. In the Old Testament, kings, priests, and prophets. And the prophets were the social critics holding the priests and the kings' feet to the fire in terms of the covenant. Well, you can see James Madison coming from Witherspoon at Princeton with his notion of human beings fallen, ambition checking ambition, separation of powers, checks and balances. The French Revolution was decisively, and the Chinese one too, utopian. Hmm. And utopian revolutions lead in each case to a reign of terror and anything but what is architects hopeful and you can go on down the line well that's that's interesting you know i don't know whether you're familiar with the writings or teachings of jordan peterson but that is a point that peterson makes over and over again who isn't oh yeah yeah it's <laughs> kind of hard to ignore days? him these days right yeah <laughs> but i mean he is he is like a dog on a bone about the power or the the corruption of totalitarian or secular revolutions and he says you know in many of his works how horrible the 20th century was as the most godless culture in history. So is it, is it similar to that? Like when you, when you try to create utopia and you lose even, I, I don't know whether he would call them Christian principles, but he, he certainly teaches about the Bible quite extensively. But, but his argument is that when you remove God from the process, you really set ourselves up to be tyrants. Um, similar vein of thought, different vein of thought. I'm, I'm curious. Oh, very, very similar. And you've got in Canada, too, one of the strongest critics of the Enlightenment, John Ralston Saul, who wrote Voltaire's Bastards and mm. showed rather than producing some 
specific and utopian idealistic outcome. They produced anti-Semitism, violence, racism, and so on. And even many of the great thinkers like Hume and Kant, and you can go back and show the racism and anti-Semitism in their writings. So the Enlightenment sowed the seeds for a good deal of this, and I think Jordan Peterson is exactly right. One of the great things coming from the biblical view is that it's a sustained critique of the abuse of power. Hmm. Of course, it was a Catholic layman who gave us the famous quote, all power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Sadly, he said that in the context of his own church, and he knew well it was the Catholic church which borrowed Roman institutions, and the Roman institutions were hierarchical. They were not biblical. And hierarchical institutions based on power, it's easily corrupted, and produced the Inquisition, you know, the forced conversion of Jews and various other horrendous evils. And uh, Lord Acton was opposing those. But I think the Bible itself has a magnificent critique of power, and nowhere more than in the Exodus and in the Prophets. You know, it's one of the the reasons I wanted to have this conversation with you and bring it to the podcast is I think a lot of us are trying to figure out what's going on. And I love the fact that you root this in centuries and even millennia old thinking, uh, because we tend to think of ourselves as the only generation that ever lived. And we're making this up as we go along. (laughs) But these these roots are actually quite deep. One one question for you before we move on. Uh, So I've read numerous critiques or, or analyses of the faith of the founding fathers of the United States. And there's a strong argument that, you know, America was never intended to be a Christian nation, that some of the the leading fathers were not Christians, but deists. You know, Thomas Jefferson was more of a deist, the argument goes, than a Christian. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Because you're saying, no, 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 no. In, In 1776, in the Constitution, it was fundamentally based on Christian principles uh, as opposed to the French Revolution. Any any thoughts on that school of thinking? Well, absolutely. I mean, when people say Christian America, it's like a red rag to a bull, say, to the Jewish community and to many others, too. Hmm. And I think we have to say uh, America was never officially, formally established Christian. Like, right. say, uh, France was established Catholic, or Spain was established Catholic, and England was established Protestant, and mm. Church, uh, Scotland was established Presbyterian. None of those. In other words, the First Amendment makes a break. And so it's true that most of the early Americans were Christians, no question. And it's also true that most of the ideas in the Revolution were Christian. Mm. Was America officially Christian? Absolutely not. In fact, the First Amendment prohibits that. Congress should make no law respecting an establishment of religion and so on. So I think a lot of Christians have put their foot in that one unnecessarily. (laughs) Now, the trouble is, you know, when George Washington described it as a great experiment, experiments are open-ended. So you can immediately guess two ways that the experiment can undermine itself. One is through being so open to every new idea which American freedom is, that it welcomes ideas that undermine the whole system. Or the other is you become so tolerant to every new idea around that the tolerance just slips into indifference, a sloppy indifference. But either way, you undermine the very ideas you need to keep the system thriving. Because you mentioned the framers. You know, they go from Patrick Henry was an evangelical. Hmm. 
George Mason, fully Orthodox Anglican believer. Washington, Orthodox, but rather vague. You know, a God is the great architect, invisible hand, and this sort of stuff. Jefferson, as you said, a deist. And you move across to Franklin and then further still to Tom Paine. There was <laughs> terrific variety of faith. But I would say this, Kerry, every one of them believed in what I call in an earlier book, the golden triangle of freedom. It wasn't the faith was established, but freedom required virtue. Virtue required faith of some sort, and faith of any sort required freedom. And rather like the recycling triangle, that goes round and round and round. Freedom requires virtue, which requires faith, which requires freedom, which requires virtue, ad infinitum. And they all believed in that. You can find quotations supporting that in all of them. But I'm not for a minute saying they were all Orthodox Christians. Right, right. No, you hear that argument, though, floated around, which is why I wanted to nuance that a little bit. And yet Christian principles uh, were underneath the the understanding of governance. And, and I love your, your understanding of the checks on power, too. Now, I think most people would look back at the election of 2016, however you voted or didn't vote, and go, wow, that surfaced. That was like the worst election, <laughs> no matter how you look at it, that we've had in a long, long time. But you wrote about the election in your book of 1800, which was Jefferson versus John Adams, and uh, that that was perhaps the most raucous until recently uh, election in U.S. history. Tell us a little bit more about that, because I think often we have an idealized view of the past and we don't realize that we are not the first generation to struggle with division. So to the extent that you can, take us back to 1800, Jefferson versus Adams. And what was that election like? Well, you know, every time people complain about, say, civility, people, someone will say, well, it was worse than 1800. And that was a pretty bad one. Accusations of illegitimate children and all sorts of things. It was just scurrilous. But I do think we're much worse now. Mm. And I think civility has broken down. And even in the last two weeks here, for instance, people saying, well, some white is going to have to die. Well, you probably know they're talking about white privilege. You probably know the ideas of René Girard, the French anthropologist from Stanford, um, who's a mentor to Peter Thiel, who put money into Facebook for that reason. Right. So these things are not just academic. You know, his idea was that the basic way of handling what he calls imitative desire or mimetic desire it, it, is, it leads to a conflict, a rivalry, resentment, which breaks out either in scapegoating enemies outside you or in scapegoating some victim within you. Hmm. And of course, the left thinks Trump is trying to do that. But equally, you could argue there are many people almost every week, someone calling basically for the assassination of the president. And you see a very, very dangerous breakdown of civility in America. Of course, biblically, when words break down, violence is never far away. And that's why I think we are worse than the 1800 election at a very dangerous point. But here's something I would add, though, Kerry. You know, well, I mentioned Trump in 2016. Mm-hmm. He talked Make America Great Again, MHEA. Now yeah. that's connected with racism and all sorts of things. He never asked what made America great in the first place. And you can see the missing, the great difference to now and just before the Civil War, which was equally divided, is that there's no Lincoln-like leader. 
So what Lincoln did in the 1850s, he addressed the evils, slavery, division, house divided, cannot stand, and so on, in the light of what he called the better angels of the American nature, and he appealed to the Declaration. In other words, there were evils built into the American system, like the Constitution, three-fifths and all that stuff, racism, slavery. He tackled them, but he believed in the Declaration. So did Booker T. Washington, so did Frederick Douglass, so did Martin Luther King. But in the 60s, from Stokely Carmichael right down to Black Lives Matter, there are people who are tackling the evils, but no longer appealing to the better angels, because America now is seen as chronically sexist, racist, hegemonic, and all sorts of other rude words. In other words, there's no Lincoln speaking on behalf of the better angels, and that's a huge difference. And that's why I think America's close to a Rubicon moment where there are many, you look at the Democratic candidates appearing for the next election, they are far closer to the French Revolution than the American, many of them. And America is near the Rubicon moment, which Caesar, of course, crossed, uh, and it'll be a point of no return unless there's a leader who speaks up or people who speak up. Does some of this have to do, because what I've heard in the, in the subtext of the conversation so far as you're describing other eras, there was an appeal to a higher ideal. So, for example, Christian values that that were outside of an individual or, you know, as Jefferson wrote in the Declaration of Independence, there are certain inalienable rights, right? That, that, that you know, Kant would have called them a universal maxim. Um, has that broken down? Is that somehow underneath this, like, all we have is each other and we don't like each other and we hate each other and we fight all the time? Like, what... What is what is missing now that was present in previous dialogue and civil discourse? Well, what you just said is absolutely true. I would argue, you know, there's a lot of talk in the last 10 years of a post-truth world, the economy's yeah. cover, things like that. Of course, that goes back to Nietzsche in the 1880s, not to the economist. For, for quite a while now, we realized we're in a post-truth world. In other words, everything's power without the principle of truth. But I would argue we're actually going beyond that now. We're not only increasingly post-truth, we are post-rights. wasn't long ago when people were saying, well, the Universal Declaration, 1948, it's the Bible of the human rights revolution which will sweep the world, the kind of secular equivalent of the Bible. Nonsense. Now people are saying, well, the Universal Declaration is Western-centric. It has no philosophical roots. And, of course, it's been weaponized by people like the Americans. But, in other words, there's no one defending the basis of human rights. Now, where did the basis come from? Obviously, the Bible. There is no high view of the preciousness of the human individual outside the Bible. And I would go on beyond that and take, say, something connected to that, like freedom. You know, people say freedom. Freedom, 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 almost as a cliche. Actually, you try and ground freedom. You cannot ground it the Babylonians or the Egyptians or the Persians. That's no surprise. You can't ground it in the Greeks. Behind freedom, Moira, fate. You cannot even ground it in the atheists. You take someone like uh, Spinoza or Freud or Marx or modern new atheists like Sam Harris. Freedom is a fiction. Everything is determined by chance and necessity. The grounds of human dignity and the grounds of personal liberty 
are in the Bible and nowhere else. And that's a very dangerous moment for people to be rejecting the Bible. And you can see the French Revolution was anti-religious, which of course yeah. meant anti-Christian. And so increasingly is the American culture for a similar reason. Yeah, and I think you could argue that there's been a secularization on both sides of the house in America as well. It's not like one party embodies, you know, Christian ideals and the other doesn't. Is that fair? Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and there are, there are Republicans who are much more interested in conservative economics than they are in anything touching anything cultural, social, spiritual. Yes, it's on both sides, but the blatancy of it is now much more audible and visible in, in the Democratic Party, openly anti-Christian statements coming out increasingly. I'm interested, too, in what you said about, you know, 2016, uh, revealing what was already there. There's another book. I actually hope to have him on the podcast this year by Seth Stevens Davidovich. It's called Everybody Lies, What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are. And his argument is now that we have 15 years of Google data, it's proving a lot of the polls wrong. So what I might tell you to summarize his argument in, in brief, and then I'll get to the question is, you know, Oz, yeah, I... I believe in freedom and I believe in rights for everybody. And so, yeah, that's how I'm answering this question publicly. And that's what I say on my profile. But he says Google operates as a confessional. And what they're discovering is that a lot of the racism that you see verbally and and visually in American culture today was there a decade ago and 15 years ago. It just wasn't polite to say it. And that people were Googling those results uh, and and their questions and jokes about people of other races at very high levels. So in other words, what I tell you to your face, because I want to be a member of civil society, and what I'm doing behind closed doors and what I believe behind closed doors are two different things. And so he's saying this Google data paints a much grimmer picture of American and global culture than we would have thought. So you're also arguing that you know, these, these divisions that we have in our culture uh, that kind of run through our heart. I think that was Hume, right? Good and evil runs through, the, through every human heart. Um, have been around for a long time. Two things. Number one, why were they suppressed for so long? I guess three things. Have they gotten worse? And then why all of a sudden have they erupted? Well, absolutely. And I think people didn't realize the power of the social media in amplifying what the Bible would call the inclination to sin in all sorts of ways. And so if you go back to, say, Peter Thiel's original 500 million investment in Facebook, as I understand it from his friends, he thought it would be a new alternative community, a human community, which would help to channel emotions and be a check on the worst of emotions and so on. But it's done the opposite. It's reinforced the various negative inclinations we have. And so you have an increase in resentments, an increase in rivalry, and this is what's leading to the potential for increased violence. And, you know, I had a paragraph in my book on words break down, violence may break out, and the fear is scapegoating and attempted Mm -hmm. assassination. And I think that's a very serious problem. In other words, a cleansing of the nation through the purging of violence, which would be horrendous. And it was cut out. It was cut out of the book. People thought that was just too extreme. And I personally don't think it is. If you look back in history and look into the human heart and what things like the social media are doing to us. 
Well, this is kind of where we go historically, right? I mean, mm-hmm. things get really yeah. bad and then all literally civilization in the most literal sense breaks down and we treat each other horribly, you know, whether that's genocide or slaughter involves. And then the next generation goes, we'll never do it again. And the cycle repeats. Well, I think we're, at, you know, we, we've been talking mainly about the American Republic and you're in Canada and I'm an Englishman. Hmm. But we could equally look more widely at the West. I've been in many other countries, including Canada. I was at your national prayer breakfast last year, and then I was out in Australia talking to some of the Australian leaders there. You can see this certainly in the English-speaking world and, of course, across Europe, too. In other words, we are witnessing the decline of the West as a civilization. And people are so concerned with the rise of China and military and economic power, but they don't ask what made the West the West. And the West has never been animated, inspired, or united without faith. Now, there's no question that the Christian faith, especially in Europe, became extremely corrupt. Uh, My actual family is Irish, and the reaction against the corruptions of the Catholic Church are vicious and rapid. And Ireland is secularizing as fast as any nation in history. So we all know the abuses, but the question is, what's going to rebuild civilization? And I I want to shift my thinking now more and more to the questions of hope and rebuilding foundations, because a lot of people have fear, many people are despairing and discouraged, and I think this is no time to be discouraged, but it's rather like an Augustinian moment. Augustine had the privilege and responsibility of living as Rome collapsed. And he didn't despair. He gave his vision of the city of God, outlasting the city of man. And we've got to do the equivalent in our own day. All right. Well, let's talk about that. Where is the opportunity? Because it's easy to paint a bleak picture. That's not hard to do. Um, and I think <laughs> it resonates with a lot of people. But I'd love to know what you think our Augustinian moment might be. Well, clearly, the church will survive the worst. The gates of hell will not prevail. Mm. And in other words, the counsels and strategies of darkness will not prevail. But I think our challenge is, you know, I I love a little phrase of Reinhold Niebuhr. The end is not the end. By which you meant, if you look in the Bible, there's two types of end. There's end as finis, ending, full stop, Mm. period. And that happens, you know, the summer ends, and we're now in winter. Our lives end, we die. There's a certain built-in ending in the very natural course of things. But there's a second end in the Bible. That's end as telos in the Greek sense, end as objective, goal. And obviously, every ending in the first sense is not the end of the world. No, God has his purposes. And in our times of trust and faithfulness and obedience and living actively and intentionally as he calls us to, we're laying the foundations for whatever comes. We don't know if a dark ages is coming or a massive uh, awakening, which would be wonderful. We just simply Mm. don't know. We've got to be faithful in our time and live out the truths, unlike the church, which has abused power or has compromised the faith. So we've got to look at all the diminishing of the faith today, whether it's under the impact of modernity, I've written on that a lot, or whether it's the impact of modern ideas, or whatever it is, and really seek to live faithfully and trustingly, because we know that the end is not the end, and the Lord has his purposes for the next time, and all we're called to be is faithful. 
Now, I, I think that means we've got to think through what are the foundations. In other words, the way I put it, talking, say, in political circles here in Washington, the challenge of our time, can we create human societies that respect dignity and achieve freedom with justice, stability, peace, etc., etc.? It sounds utopian. Now, what would it take? Well, it takes a certain view of human dignity, takes a certain view of truth and words and freedom and justice. They're all there in the Bible, and we need to unpack them, explore them, live them out with incredible confidence in our time and lay the foundation so that people will look back on us in 100 years' time and say, well, at least they were in tough times, but they were faithful. And their vision is something that outlasted the decline of, of, of their own societies. So what does that look like practically for someone saying, that's great on a philosophical level, and I love the distinction between, you know, finished and, and telos, which, you know, from which on a practical level, you either get, you even get telescope, right? You're looking through something toward a greater end, mm-hmm. which, which I think is the Christian understanding of time and purpose and, and history and that kind of thing. What what can we do? I mean, people are going to have to vote in another year. Not that they want to necessarily. They have to act in a civil society. They're on their social media feeds. Uh, and this is increasing. Like I think for most people, you want to get at a very practical level. Anxiety is on the rise. Depression is on the rise. Understandably so. So with people trying to cope in <laughs> post-Christian America or the post-Christian West, what does that mean? Well, you mentioned the social media. If you just take a biblical view, one of words and two of truth, no Christian should be caught up in a lot of the nonsense that comes out in the social media today. We are people of truth. We're not only called to believe the truth or to defend the truth. We're called to become people of truth, to live in truth, and so on. Now, we've got to figure out what that means in the age of the social media of constant lying of ads and political speech and political correctness and so on. We are the champions of truth. And and there's an immense amount there that comes out, the very notion of words. We have a a very different view of words in Wells, and I'm writing on freedom, human dignity. Take the notion, Kerry. There's almost no defense of the individual today. Now, we're in a very individualistic culture, but the right. defense of the pre- preciousness of the individual, you take algorithms or utilitarianism, the greatest good of the greatest number. Everything's in terms of groups and statistics and big numbers and big data and all this. There is no philosophy of the preciousness of the individual. Where does that come from? The Bible. Yeah. As our Jewish brothers say, you know, to save one life is to save the universe. To kill one life is to destroy the universe. We are the guardians, Jews and Christians, of the biblical view. It's being called the Magna Carta of humanity. We just start there and then look at all the stuff coming from Silicon Valley with cyborgs and all this. We are the highest humanism in the world today in the sense hmm. of a view of human worth. But a, a high humanism with realism. We know that humans go wrong and so on. So I, I think our... Basic truths are incredibly practical, but they need to be unpacked. You know, let me be absolutely rude about a lot of American preaching I've heard. With a few distinguished exceptions, much of the preaching today is so trivial. Mm 
Hmm. At an urgent time, where, I mean, I grew up under Martin Lloyd-Jones or John Stott, who was a friend and mentor. Hmm. When John Stott, you know, preached in the old, old souls, you couldn't see him. He was prostrate on his face before the Lord, before he opened the word. And I, I look at some of the young preachers today, hands in their pockets, you know, the Bible off to the side somewhere with jokes and all sorts. They're brilliant speakers, but are they servants of the Word, unpacking the Word, exploring the Word? The Word is rich in the truths which are so desperately needed in our times. And much of the American preaching I've heard, I, I haven't heard a sermon in Canada, to be honest, I can't yeah. comment there. Much of the American preaching I've heard is just trivial. Hmm. On that note, one of the things I've been kind of, you know, preoccupied with in the back of my mind is this idea that intellectually uh, preachers today are losing ground to even the new atheists and uh, to many other areas of discourse. And I think we've, you know, Jordan Peterson, to quote him again, is right. We have grossly underestimated the attention span and the level of intelligence at which people want dialogue. Hence, you know, millions of copies sold of the 12 Rules for Life, long form podcasting, three and a half, four hour podcast multiple times a week that mm -hmm. are being consumed in the tens of millions and people want nuanced thought. So you think a good step would be better study and a better faithfulness in the pulpit? I mean, I'm, I'm all for that. I'd love to hear you comment on that. Well, absolutely. Again, you may, I mentioned our Jewish friends. You know, if you look at the Exodus, the key thing is transmission and thinking. So what did Moses okay. talk about the night of the Passover? He didn't talk about freedom or the promised land or the howling desert they were across. He talked about children. Mm -hmm. And for the Jews from then onwards, especially after AD 130, when they lost their capital, lost their king, they lost everything, they were scattered at the far corners of the earth and persecuted. What kept them alive was the Torah and the study of the Torah. Believe it or not, the Jews have had education for every Jew since the first century. Only came in in England in 1870. And you can see Christians are evangelical. I'm an evangelical. I'm ashamed evangelical. But I am ashamed at some of the things in evangelicalism, including the anti-intellectualism. And the fear of being serious about the big ideas of our times is really so stupid. There's not just a hunger for it, as you were saying, and Jordan Peterson taps on that. There's a desperate need for it. We've got to have a seriousness because we're living in serious times. What I do see on social, because I'm on it daily, for better or for worse, is a lot of partisan positions. In other words, you know, react against this law, react against, I can't believe candidate X or politician Y said X, Y, Z. Any thoughts on how as Christians we, I, I stay very apolitical in uh, my own posting in terms of partisan politics, but any idea on what is a good posture for Christians today to take on social, if there is a posture? Well, you know, I'm an Englishman here in the yes. U.S., so I'm totally nonpartisan, bipartisan. I don't get into the nitty-gritty of the day-to-day -day politics. Now, that's partly because many of the deeper issues run deeper than the partisan things. You said earlier right. the Republicans, in many cases, just as bad as the Democrats. Um, so they're not 
they're not partisan issues. And of course, if we move beyond America, many of the things we're talking about are Western issues or looking wider still, they're human issues. And as followers of Jesus, we're passionate about everything human. And certainly we're concerned about the West's departure from things that were the biblical basis for much of the best of the West. So, so I'm really partisan and always trying to get people to think more deeply, you know, about the root issues and what they really mean. And so maybe that's a good direction is to say, you know, rather than commenting on whatever came across your newsfeed or candidate X or position Y, to think through at a deeper level and perhaps refrain a little bit more from adding to the noise? Is that what I hear you saying? Yeah, yeah, thinking holistically, and you mentioned early history. You take, say, the sexual revolution, which is a huge part of the modern Western discussion. You know, many people I meet, they they just think in terms of anecdotes. Who am I to disagree with? My neighbor, my sister-in-law, my colleague, or whatever. (laughs) And you get into this view or that dreadful thing that's happening wherever. Whereas I would urge Christians to look at the sexual revolution in its holistic completeness. It didn't come from Playboy and Hugh Hefner and a few things like that. It traces back through Wilhelm Reich, who was the architect of the term, all the way back to people like Rousseau and to, in this case, the Marquis de Sade. Now, when Hmm. you look at the whole, for example, if you look at the whole, one thing that comes again and again and again, the sexual revolution has two main enemies. They'll never win unless they beat these two enemies. One is parents. That's why sex education at three and four. The other is the church. In other words, Hmm. it's quite deliberately a subversion of everything that Jews and Christians stand for. And the naivety of some Christians in dealing with it, because they don't think holistically. They don't go back to the roots. They don't look at history. Okay, so I'm curious. Parents, you've, you've, you've got my interest peaked. Parents in the church, so sex education, talk, talk about that. What we're not, we're afraid of it. We went there too soon. We're educating too early. What, what's, what were you saying with that? Just so I no, understand. I'm saying they, they, they want sex education at three and four, pro-gay, yeah. pro-transgender, whatever, in order to knock out the influence of parents. So, ah. for example, I was, I, I was listening to Ryan Anderson, you know, who's a Catholic defender of traditional marriage in a wonderful way. And he was telling about schools where kids go to school to the principal's office and change into the clothes in the office in the morning of whatever sex they want to be, and they live in those clothes the day. Then they go back to the principal's office, change back into their uh, normal clothes by which their family knows them and expects them to pick them up. And the parents don't actually know a deliberate wow. attempt to subvert the influence of the parents. And of course, you read Wilhelm Reich, that is quite intentional, and we should know that. And of course, they want to undermine the church too. Yeah, and, and yet a lot of parents are very reticent to talk to their kids about anything like that because we're underprepared, right? We, we, we don't want to talk to her. We don't want to have the talk or multiple talks with our kids on that. It's tricky. It is yeah. tricky to keep up with all the crazy stuff that's going on today. You know, one of the things I learned from Francis Schaeffer was he always tried to keep people just ahead of the game. So mm. they're going to high school, prepare people what they meet in high school. You're going to college. Well, at college, you'll meet X and Y. 
and so on, just to keep people, if you can, just that bit ahead of the game. And then it doesn't surprise them, and they're ready to take it on. All right. Well, you know, this has been uh, fascinating, and I'm glad that we could kind of lift our eyes a little bit and go deeper, go further back, go above the, the skirmish that we find ourselves in. I'll give you, uh, in light of time today, just a chance for one more word on what you think people can do, people, the tens of thousands of people who listen to an episode like this can do to make a difference and guard really the fabric of, of what you're saying is, is our liberty, right? Our freedom uh, before things really kind of collapse in on us. So I'd love to hear you say what else we can do as we, we close today. Well, I think we need to ask the Lord to awaken each of us that we may be all that he wants us to be. So knowing him, knowing the scriptures, understanding our faith, being able to defend our faith, having a clear sense of our individual calling, having friends around us for fellowship and inspiration, encouragement, and people to hold our feet to the fire. We need a lot of these simple things and then have a vision of what it is that's our contribution in the world. You know, I love that little verse in Acts thirteen thirty six where Paul just says as a tribute to King David, David, after he'd served God's purpose in his own generation, fell asleep, died. Mm. I love that. All we're responsible for is living faithfully in our time. So that means knowing the Lord, knowing our time, and knowing what our tiny part of it is. So very few of us can do very much. But we can all do what the Lord's put in our lives, in our spheres of influence. We do that, then we hope we can hear his words at the end. Well done, good and faithful servant. But calling should be at the heart of it all. Well, Oz Guinness, thank you. The book is called The Last Call for, Last Call rather, for Liberty, How America's Genius for Freedom Has Become Its Greatest Threat. Thanks so much for uh, being with us today. Great privilege, Kerry. Thank you. Hey, if you want more, make sure you check out the show notes. You can go to kerrynewhoff.com slash episode 255. You will get all the show notes and even transcripts. Yeah, we've been doing transcripts for a while. I know a lot of you love those. And then next week, we are back with a fresh episode. I am sitting down with the former CEO of HP. She ran for president of the United States. Her name Carly Fiorina, we had a fascinating conversation. I mean, the truth bombs in, in, in our almost hour-long chat, unbelievable. Here's an excerpt. I can't design the product, but if I can't understand, if anyone can understand the benefits of a product, the costs of a product, the use of a product, just as one example, then whoever's trying to explain it doesn't understand it either, and it's time to send them back to the drawing board. My point being, never underestimate the power of a question, and don't dismiss your own ability to understand the essence of what's important if you're in a decision-making mode. Get to that essence. And if someone can't tell you what the essence of the decision is, then it's time to go back to the drawing board. So that's next week on the podcast. Subscribers, you get that automatically for free, of course. And uh, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Don't forget the PushPay Summit. If you haven't registered yet, what are you waiting for? Go to pushpay.com forward slash summit 
and you can get a discount. If you use the coupon code CARRYN at registration, you will bring the cost down almost half to $89 per person. You're going to learn from some of the best from Patrick Lencioni, Cheryl Batchelder, former CEO of Popeye. She's also been a podcast guest, Nona Jones, and uh, I'm really looking forward to giving uh, some keynotes there as well. So anyway, join us at the PushPay Summit, uh, pushpay.com forward slash summit. Use coupon code CARRYN. And we will talk to you next week. Thank you so much for sharing this. Thank you so much for all the encouraging interaction that I see on the socials. So whether you're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, share this. Uh, you can even email it to uh, people that you care about. And we will see you next time. And in the meantime, I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.